This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Before we begin, I want to thank you for coming out. If you are here live on Zoom, thank you for being here live on Zoom. If you are leaving your camera on, thank you, thank you. You get a double thank you. Because the more people leave their camera on, the more we feel like we're talking to a crowd of human beings and not black boxes with random names on it. And I also want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit, for they are the ones who enable us to do all that we do, all of our classes, all of our learning together. Thank you to Partners Detroit and Yeshiva Beth Yehuda. Also, major thank you to the folks over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's got tens, hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Torah content. And with that, we will launch right in. This week's Parsha is Parsha's bow, as in... Bo B'Shalach, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, it's in a lot of things. Okay, Bo is, we are smack in the middle, we're, we're reaching the climax of the story of the Jewish people in the land of Egypt. We had seven plagues last week, we have three plagues this week, next week we'll read about them leaving and the splitting of the sea. We are right now, right at the climax of where it all goes down. And in the middle of everything, okay, well actually, let me give a little bit of a, 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 an intro. You know, uh, recently was a, a holiday called New Year's. Every year on New Year's, throngs and throngs of thousands of people gather at the Times Square in New York and another many other locations throughout the world. I'm sure every major city has their own little, and, and every major city per country. <laughs> I don't know that Detroit has a major ball drop. But... They've got major ball drops and other things like this all over the world where there's thousands of people gathered around. This year, due to COVID, they limited the number of people who were allowed to come to the Times Square ball drop to 15,000. Usually, it's closer to 60,000 people. Okay? So what happens on December 31st, starting usually in the afternoon already, you have tens of thousands of people from all over coming to New York. Some people even fly in from out of town for this incredible event. And they are gathered there by the tens of thousands. By the time nightfall comes, you've got literally, um, you've got, you've got, I don't know, like I said, 60,000 people. And there's other millions of people watching it on TV. And then on top of a very tall building, they've got a ball. And the ball is usually made up of various lights. And the ball slowly lowers. And the crowd counts down. Ten. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, and the ball is slowly coming down, and they go two, one, and then as they hit zero, the ball hits the big lights that now say flash 2022. It's 2022, and the crowd goes wild. Now, first of all, think back to all the people who gathered to usher in the incoming of 2021. They're like, 2020 has been such a horrible year with COVID and all that. They're like, let's just get rid of 2020. But little do they know, they were getting rid of 2020 and instead they got 2021, which could have been even crazier on many, many levels. So I don't know. Let's hope that 2022 is better than 2021. In any case, but that's all the excitement. I mean, that's literally what goes on. The ball drops and everyone goes crazy because the ball dropped. Wow. <laughs> Yay. It's amazing because a ball came down and then it lit up and it said 2022. Wow. Wow. This year I came out on a Shabbos. <laughs> I went to bed Friday night. I couldn't care less. You know, I'm sure at midnight there was fireworks and whatnot outside. I like it don't make no never mind. It doesn't make really any difference to me at all. Okay? Now, even, of course, you'll say, I'm a Jew. I follow the Rosh Hashanah of the New Year. That's not how I'm celebrating. And if I'm celebrating Rosh Hashanah, it's not just because a new year came in. Because there's really not much to celebrate. But, like I said, in a good year, there's 60,000 people lined up, waiting, watching, anticipation. You could feel that anticipation in the air, and everyone's counting down. It's amazing. Let me take you back in time. There's a nation called the Jewish, the, the, the Hebrews. So the children of Avram. Avram was known as Avram Ivri. He was called the Ivri because he was on the other side of the river. Everyone was on the 
polytheistic side, he was on the monotheistic side, and he had many, many, many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and they're all in Egypt. And they've been going through suffering and pain for a hundred plus years. And finally now, they're about to get their first mitzvah. You can imagine the, the anticipation for the first mitzvah, right? Moshe says, everybody get together at the town square, because today at noon, excuse me, hold on a second, we got the vacuum cleaner going on, I'm going to ask the lady if she can do the vacuuming a little later. Excuse me? No, no vacuum, I'm speaking, no vacuuming until one o'clock, okay? I'm sorry, I'm just giving a speech. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Okay, crisis averted. So, um, imagine Moshe tells the entire Jewish people, guys, listen up. At 1 o'clock today, um, the vacuum cleaner will come back on. No, no, I'm kidding. At 1 o'clock today, I'm giving the first ever mitzvah, ever, for the Jewish people. So you've got a mad crowd. Everyone's gathered around. Everyone's really excited. The first mitzvah ever the Jewish people are going to get. It's amazing. Everyone's excited. Everyone's standing around. Moshe slowly carefully, solidly walks up to the podium and he lifts up his hand and the whole crowd becomes quiet. They're waiting to hear what is the first mitzvah the Jewish people are going to get. And as the crowd silences, Moshe looks at them and says, My fellow Hebrews, the good Lord loves us and he sees us as a distinct people in the world. And he wants us to follow a whole system of, of Torah and commandments that are going to be a whole new way of life for us. And here's the first one. And everyone's quiet. And he says, we're going to change the calendar to a lunar one. Now, can you imagine the sense of bewilderment and letdown in the crowd, right? They were expecting God is going to come out and he's going to say, you know, I don't know, what's he going to say? Every year, on five days a year, you'll give each other gifts or whatever. <laughs> He's going to call new festivals. He's going to make laws that Jewish people have to give, I don't know, charity, 10%, kosher, Shabbos. There's so many laws that are so powerful and so unique. But here you have the entire Jewish people gathered around. They're about to hear the very first mitzvah, and it's going to be amazing, and they're so excited. And what do they say? Yeah, we're going to change to a lunar calendar. And they're like, what does that mean? He says, yeah, so you remember, it's, you just bought that new 2022 calendar at Walmart? Yeah, uh, you got to go back and change it out and ask, go back to Walmart. There'll be a long line of customer service. There'll be a lot of people returning their old calendars, their solar calendars. You got to go back there and you got to say, uh, excuse me, I'd like a return or exchange Specifically, I'd like an exchange. Can I exchange this solar calendar with 365 days a year in it to a lunar calendar with 354 days and 12 lunar months, each equaling between 29 and 30 days? That's it. Okay, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe we'll come back tomorrow. We'll do another mitzvah. How about that? And everyone's like, uh, I don't know if I'm coming back tomorrow. This wasn't such a thriller. What is the idea the very first mitzvah the Jewish people get is to change from a, a solar calendar to a lunar calendar? Now, much ink has been spilled on this. As a matter of fact, the first Rashi in the Torah already talks about that the Torah should have started from the first mitzvah. And we know in Judaism that the first of any kind has a massive effect on what it is. It's an incredible descriptor of everything else that's going to follow. So we need to understand, how could it be that the very first mitzvah of the Jewish people, it's one thing, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts off strong. I am the Lord your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. We're like, yeah, that's good. I like that. I get that. Cool. Cool. That's a good one. That's a, that's a power start. The Ten Commandments start off with a power stroke. The, the, all the mitzvahs the Jewish people get, the first one is... This month is the new month. You're going to go by lunar calendar now, not by the solar calendar. And you're going to count the month by the moon. When you see the moon disappear and then the moon reappears, you know that it's a new month. It just it seems incredibly anticlimactic. What is going on? Now, in previous years, we've talked about this. And one of the ideas that we mentioned, because again, we have to understand... 
how is this mitzvah? It can't just be an important one. It's got to be the important one. The first of anything tells you about everything. The first sin of Adam and Eve, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, will tell you everything you need to know about sin, period, and about yourself sinning. Not that you sin. I'm just saying, if you do, and you want to understand why do you sin, look at the story of Adam and Eve, study it at more than a first grade level, and learn about what was the meaning of that whole sin, and you'll surely find a lot about yourself in there. If you want to understand Judaism and and, and the mitzvot, the 613 commandments, look at the first one. And the first one is, let's adopt the lunar calendar. So what's going on? So in previous years, we've spoken about, and, and it's also an important concept for today, so important. We live in a world that is enthralled with the concept of determinism. Determinism is a concept that's been around for literally thousands of years. There were ancient Greek philosophers who talked about it already. Most recently, it was brought up in the mind of the modern man by and woman by Sigmund Freud, a great Jewish psychiatrist of the 20th century. And in his work, one of the things that Sigmund Freud was a very big believer in was the fact that we don't have free will. That we're basically locked in from the age of about five months. Sorry, yeah, sorry, two years, two years. Basically, the way that we're potty trained, were we potty trained early, late, how, you know, various other factors that came into us when we were little, little babies determine us for the rest of history. So if you want to understand you, all you got to do is look at your first couple years of life and you got the whole picture figured out. That's Sigmund Freud. And indeed, if you actually look at the syllabus and the course description of modern psychology classes, you'll see language like this, where we discuss whether or not human beings have free will. And today, it's very in vogue to believe that human beings do not have free will. Right? We believe that people can't get ahead if they're from certain oppressed classes, and they can't get ahead on their own. Uh, We believe that... um, People have to loot and riot because they're frustrated by certain injustices and they don't have free will. And we shouldn't be punishing them because it's their frustration talking, it's not them. We believe that people don't have the ability to determine what am I? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? But rather it's predetermined and we don't have any choice. It's not a choice that we're making. It's just who you are. You don't have a choice. We believe that people... There's so much things that we're describing to people that even when they're doing things, when people are committing adultery, it's because they didn't really have a choice. There's a, a, a monkey brain somewhere inside of us from previous forms of evolution, and the monkey is pre-programmed to try to be involved with as many people as possible so they can reproduce the species, you know, and so on and so forth. We explain away so much of bad human behavior and indeed, even good human behavior, right? The same people will tell you, you don't have any free will. And if you're doing terrible things, it's because you were compelled to do them by various things in your environment. When you do, when they see other people doing good things, they say, oh yeah, that's just the way they were programmed. They were programmed from the time they were young to want to do good. So they're not really choosing to do good and volunteer their time on Sunday afternoons for the soup shelter and then whatever, the soup kitchen. It's just they're pre-programmed to be little goody two-shoes. So like we, we, there's a, a very strong attempt right now to take away people's free will and agency and ability to create their own lives. And instead to just say, you are what you are, you're pre-programmed that way, and that's what you are. That's called determinism. Very, very popular today in progressive psychological thought. Let's just remove everybody from all uh, free will choices. I remember recently having a debate with a very... Um, respected professor in the field of child psychology and child development. And he basically said that there's, there's no such thing as a, as, a, as a child who's making bad choices, right? Meaning there's a child who are, children, children who are reacting to traumas in their lives. But even, a, you know, I, I, I said to him, what about a person who's a, a child who's a murderer, who goes into schools and does school shootings? He wouldn't, he, he couldn't say, well, that, that person's 
making bad choices. Because then again, then it determines that the person, there's a level of guilt levied on him. We can't do that. We have to just determine, it was, he was just acting out because he was a child and he was abused or whatever it was. So we're trying to really excuse away everything, all bad behavior, and indeed, take away the credit for all good behavior. The first mitzvah in the Torah says, you're going to be like the moon, not like the sun. The sun always is the same every single year. It doesn't change. It's always the same. The moon is constantly waxing and waning. You, the Jewish people, I want you to know that you are like the sun, not like the moon. You have choices. You have free will. Sometimes you're really good as a person and you expand yourself. Sometimes you're bad as a person and you lower yourself and you debase yourself. You wax and you wane. You are better and you are worse. Not like the Egyptian society that surrounds you, which believes that if you're born as a noble, you will always be a noble no matter what you've done wrong. And if you're born as a peasant, no matter how hard you work, you'll be nothing but a peasant your whole life. So the first mitzvah is telling the Jewish people that you have free will, you have agency, you have control over your life, you have a control over what you do, and God expects greatness out of you, but also understands that you're going to fall, you're going to be like the moon, you're going to wax, you're going to wane, you're going to be great, you're going to be terrible, and that's what life is all about. This was revolutionary in an Egyptian world, to believe that you have agency over your own life. That you could be a bigger person or a smaller person based on your own choices. Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld, the founder of my alma mater, Yeshiva Shayashiv, he was a great giant of a man. He happened to be a giant of a man, literally, like he was six foot, I don't know, six foot five. He was massive. But he used to always tell his students be big people. Be big. Someone's trying to get you angry, someone's making fun of you, someone's saying things that you don't like. Yet you could be little and lose your temper, or you could be a big person and make a choice. I'm just going to let it go. You have control over yourself. You can determine who you are and what you are. And he used to always implore his students, be big people. The moon is sometimes big and it's sometimes small. We are sometimes big people. We sacrifice. We give of ourselves. We do for others. And sometimes we're little, little people. We're petty, we're selfish, we're narcissistic, we don't care, we're not sensitive to other people's pain. And that's what life is all about. So when Moshe came and told us, it wasn't just saying, we're going to go by the moon and go buy a new calendar. He was saying, we're about to enter a whole new world order where humanity understands that he has agency over his own world. And the people were indeed gasping. We're entering a system in which we have agency over our own world, our own life. And the answer was, yes, you are. You will determine if you are good or bad. You will determine if you're better or worse. You will determine the effect you have on the world. And that was a massive chiddush, a massive novelty. But I want, we've spoken this before. This week, I want to take it one step further. And this is a fresh idea. So, you have every right to disagree You have every right to send me an email saying, Rabbi, I disagree with your point today, and here's why. But I want to take it one step further. For starters, the new moon is something that's amazing, because God puts that into the hands of the Jewish people. This month is lachem, to you, the new months. What does that mean to you? It means that we have control over the new month. As Hashem says to Moshe, Kazeh re'eh v'kadesh. Like this moon, Hashem showed him the image of a tiny little sliver crescent. Like this you shall see, and you shall sanctify the new moon. How is the new moon sanctified in the Jewish people during the biblical times? It was sanctified by two witnesses coming into court testifying that they saw the new moon with their naked eye. By the way, I just I, there's a doctor in my show, and a couple days ago, it was, it was the night of, it was Monday night, he was like really excited, he was like, everybody, if you want to come, there's going to be four different planets that you can see on the horizon tonight, and maybe even we'll see a baby, 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 tiny moon. And the next night, he said, anybody wants to come out with me, I'll be by this, by this 
ballpark. There's like a, a field, a big open field. We'll be able to see the whole horizon. Come and meet me there. And sure enough, the next day he came back. He's like, wow, it was amazing. First of all, I could see four different planets. It was Venus and this. I don't remember exactly which four planets it was that were visible in the horizon yesterday. But he said, I saw the moon smaller than I've ever seen it before. I couldn't even see it with the naked eye, but I knew where to look for it. And I had a pair of very strong binoculars and I was able to look and see this tiniest sliver of the moon. Now, by the way, that would not be enough of a moon to be able to declare a new moon. It has to be visible to the naked eye. But the way that the moon was consecrated for thousands, for over a thousand years was by people coming into court and the court asking them and cross-examining them and then if they determined that they were telling the truth, they would stand up and they would say, Mikudash, the new moon is sanctified. Right? And it would be an amazing moment. But here's something that's even more important to understand about this. It's not just that the Jewish court gets to determine when the new moon is. The new moon determines all the Jewish holidays and all the Jewish festivals. So who has control over when Pesach is? We do. Who has control over when Rosh Hashanah is? We do. Yom Kippur, us, Sukkot, uh-huh. Hashem not only gave us this mitzvah that we should determine when the new moon is, but Hashem said, I'm going to tie all the holidays to your calculations. I'm giving you control. So much so that even if there was a mistake, even if somehow the, the court made a new moon, a declared Rosh Chodesh on a day that it wasn't supposed to be, it is. And the holiday is that holiday. I want to read to you a story from the Gemara. It's actually found in the Mishnah too. A story in Rosh Hashanah. So the story goes like this. For those of us who just learned, who learned the daf, we didn't do this too long ago. So the story is found in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is found on Perak, uh, on Pasuk, uh, on <laughs> Daf Chav Hei Aleph. Okay? It's in the second uh, chapter of of Rosh Hashanah, of Tractate Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnah. So there was a machlokas between Rabbi Gamliel and, um, and the rabbis and other rabbis about a specific thing, whether you could call it the new moon or not. So two people come into court and they say that we saw the moon on the 30th day, and we saw it, uh, sorry, they said, we, they said, we saw it on the 30th day, but we did not see it on the 31st day. Rabbi Gamil said, that's okay, I still believe it's a, new, it's a new month. And he said, okay, Rabbi Gamil accepted their t- testimony, Rabbi Gamil was the Nasi, he was the leader of the Jewish people, and he accepted them. Rabbi Dosa bin Horkinus, he disagreed with them. He said, what are you talking about? How is it possible that you say that uh, a woman gave birth and then the next day you see her and she's pregnant? Right? If she gave birth, but you see the next day that she's pregnant, that's impossible. So how could it be that you said you saw, you saw the new moon, but then the next day the moon was missing? The moon is usually missing in between. There's a little period of time, whatever, in between the last of the last month's moon and then the new moon. There's a period of time a little bit more than 24 hours, where the moon is just invisible at all. So how could you say that you saw the new moon on day 30, but on day 31, there was no new moon? It's like you're saying the baby was born, but then the next day, the baby's gone, and the mother's still pregnant. How could that be? So Rabbi Dosa, he said that it should not be. He said, They must be, they're lying. These, these, these witnesses are false testifiers. Okay, so now... Rabbi Yeshua agrees with Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Sorry, Rabbi Dosa ben Horkinus. So again, the question is, what day is Rosh Chodesh? Is it day A or day B? Now it happened to me that that month was Tishrei. And in that month, that means that Tishrei determines a lot of stuff. It determines when Yom Kippur is. It determines when Rosh Hashanah is. Now Rosh Hashanah they were keeping anyway out of doubt. But it, it determines when Yom Kippur is, when Sukkot is. And now you have a showdown between some rabbis, Rabbi Dosa ben Horkinus and Rabbi Yeshua, 
and Rabbi Gamliel. But Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi. Rabbi Gamliel was the leader of the Jewish people at the time, and he was the deciding factor. Rabbi Gamliel sends a proclamation to Rabbi Yeshua. I'm decreeing on you that you must show up to my court on the day that is Yom Kippur, according to your calculation, you must show up to my court with your walking stick and your money belt, which are things that he would not be allowed to carry in those areas if it was Yom Kippur. It would be an absolute transgression of a biblical commandment. And Rabbi Yeshua is beside himself because he's got to now go and violate what he believes is Yom Kippur. Can you imagine a rabbi's entire life Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the, of, of, the, of the year. And never, ever, ever, ever in his life has he ever violated Yom Kippur. Chas v'shalom, God forbid. But now, the leader of the Jewish people is saying, you must violate what you believe to be Yom Kippur. And the story goes on, the, the Mishnah goes on and describes how Rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua was beside himself. And he went to get consolation and solace from various rabbis. And they basically said to him, like, look... If we don't trust the Bezdin to make determinations, then you can throw away everything, because the entire Torah is based on the interpretations and understandings of the rabbis. So you don't have to worry, you're not violating Yom Kippur, because even if, even if, it happens to be that you were right, that the moon was not really visible on day 30, it still is Rosh Chodesh, because that's when the rabbi said it is. Okay? The rabbis, Hashem gave us the power to determine what is considered Rosh Chodesh. Again, let me say it very clearly. Hashem gave us the power. There are signs in the heaven that are supposed to tell us when it is. But Hashem gave us the power. Hashem said, this is Rosh Chodesh. Period. The end. When you say it so. Now why is this so important? And why is this so fundamental? Because listen to what we're talking about over here. Hashem gave us control over His world. The first mitzvah that was ever given to the Jewish people was not just that you have control over yourself. It's way deeper. Hashem says, I'm giving you control over me. Because when you determine Pesach to fall out based on when you sanctify the new moon, based on when your Jewish earthly court decides that it's Rosh Chodesh, I'll follow suit. I'll make my Yom Kippur on whatever day you say it is. I'll make Pesach whatever day you say it is. I'll make Sukkot on whatever day you say it is. And let's remember, these are called Moadim. The holidays are called Moadim. The word Moed comes from the word Vad, like a, a coming togetherness. It, it literally means, God says, I'll clear my calendar. You tell me when you want me to come to you for the festival. It's, like, it's almost like God is calling up humanity and saying, Hey, uh, humans, when, when should I come from the Passover Seder? What day do you want me to do it? Like, is it going to be Tuesday night or Wednesday night this year? And they're like, uh, God, we determined that this year it's going to be on Wednesday night. He's like, okay, fine, I'll be there Wednesday. Do you understand what I'm talking about over here? Do you understand what the fundamental power of this mitzvah is? Again, it's not just that you have control over your own life, which you do. And you as a human being have free will. And you wax and you wane. But it's way more than that. It is a, this mitzvah tells you of the partnership between God and us. That God literally said, I'm not the boss man entirely. I will give you control over the world and you will determine for me when I show up for Pesach Seder. Wow. Wow. God gives us control over Him. That is... Just incredible. Now, let's get cabalistical. Like, really? Are you guys ready to go really deep? You want to go, like, like way deeper than this? Let's get totally cabalistical. Let's go to the seven sephiros. Let's go into the seven sort of energies that relate to our world. Okay, we're going there. We're going there. We're going there. Strap in. Now, you may know this if you've listened to the classes called The Seven Wonders of Jewish... Uh, no. The class called The Seven Mystical Pathways to Perfection. 
which if you've not watched it, I believe it's available on Torah anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it should have a series called The Seven Mystical Pathways to Perfection, which is what we work on all year round, but specifically we work on it during the Sefirah Sa'omer. And those seven energies are called Chesed, Gevura, Tiferes, Netzach, Hod, Yisod, Malchus, which means kindness, discipline, compassion, fortitude, eternality, uh, humility, foundation, and kingship. And if you go back and listen to those classes, you will see how pretty much all of human endeavor and human behavior is governed by those seven character traits. Now, if you also remember from those classes, what you would remember is that those character traits go in triads. They grow in groupings of three, like Chetzed, Gevura, and Tiferes, and Netzach, Hod, and Yesod. Chesed, Gevura, and Tiferes, one is kindness, one is discipline, and then Tiferes is compassion, which is the perfect blend of kindness and discipline. If you are too kind to your children, always giving them whatever they want, you're destroying your children. If you're too disciplinarian to your children, treating them with absolute rigidity and turning them into automatons, you're destroying your children. The proper way to raise children is Tiferes, which is the perfect blend between kindness and discipline. And that's why Yaakov, the third of the patriarchs, the one who is known for Tiferes, the one who is known for having that perfect blend of kindness and discipline, he is the only one of the patriarchs who raises children who are all able to go across the finish line, who all make it out as good guys, versus Avram, who has Yishmael, who's not a great guy, and Yitzchak, who has Esav, who's not a great guy. So, the perfect parent is the third parent. He takes the best of his grandfather's kindness and the best of his father's discipline, and he creates this new reality called Tiferes, which is this glorious blending of kindness and discipline, and because he raises his kids with the perfect blend, all of his children stay with the program. Now, the next triad is called Netzach, Hod, and Yesod, which we translate as Netzach as eternity. Hod as humility, and Yesod as foundation. But on a really deep level, the next triad is much more about the relationship that brings about the future. Let's think about a relationship between a husband and a wife. There are times when it's important for both sides to assert dominance and to hold strong. There are times where it's important for both sides, at different times obviously, to exhibit a sense of humility and yielding. So when it comes to certain decisions, we have to, I got to understand that my wife has better understanding of X, Y, and Z, and therefore I have the humility to say, okay, we'll go with what you think. That's humility. Humility doesn't mean I think I'm an idiot. Humility means I'm smart enough and confident enough to realize that there are people who are smarter than me in certain areas, and therefore I yield to them. If I wouldn't, then I'm just a arrogant, unconfident human being who can't admit to myself that other people are smarter than me and therefore force myself and try to dominate every single thing. The person who's never yielding, the person who's never in a relationship, just always domineering, that person is the little scared bully inside. And he can't take it that there might be someone out there who's smarter than him. So in order to not be able to admit that to himself, he'll fight like crazy for every little point because he can't let go. So in the perfect relationship, at times we are assertive and dominant, and at times we're passive and we, we allow other people to be dominant. And through that, we create the beautiful relationship that brings out the next generation. Okay? That's Yisod. Yisod is where we lay the foundation for the next generation. When you have a, a couple that is able to get that rhythm just right, when to assert and when to pull back, when to assert and when to pull back, then they're able to have a beautiful home and bring children into the world that will be able to be raised properly. So that is the idea of Netzach, Hod, and Yisod. 
that specific triad is when to assert, when to be passive, and the perfect blend of them is what brings out an amazingness for the world. God, in his relationship with us, at times, is absolutely assertive. For example, you may not eat pork. Period. The end. You may not kill. Well, you may not murder. Right? You may not eat wear wool and linen together. God makes a lot of dominant, assertive mitzvos. But then there are the areas where God is passive. And God says, I'm going to put things into your hand. Most notable, the very first mitzvah ever. I'll do my job in terms of setting up the moon to a recycling sort of pattern, but it's going to be your job to determine when the new moon is, and I'm going to follow your suit, whatever you say. There's a famous story in the Gemara. It's the story called Tanuro Shalachnai, which means the serpent's oven. And in that story, there's basically a dispute between one of the sages and all the other sages. And this one sage, Rabbi Elazar, he calls out, he's like, if I'm right, the water should start flowing upstream instead of downstream. And miraculously, the water starts flowing upstream. He's like, if I'm right, this wall should come crumbling down and the wall starts to crumble. If I'm right, this tree should pick itself up and move and the tree picks itself up and moves. If I'm right, a voice should come out from heaven saying that I'm right. And a voice comes out from heaven and says that he's right. And the rabbis say, sorry, we're not impressed. We're not following your opinion. You know why? Because Loba Shamayim He. The Torah is not in heaven. God gave us the Torah and He gave us rules for how we're supposed to determine what is right and what's wrong. And He said to us that you're going to follow the majority opinion of the human beings. So even when God seems to be telling us Halacha should be X, we're going to go with Y. Because that's what we determine down here. And the Talmud tells us that later, somebody asked Rabbi Eliyahu Anavi, what was God doing during that whole fight? What was God doing when he saw the rabbis overrule the heavenly voice? The heavenly voice said the halacha should be X, and the rabbis went with Y. And he said, Hashem in Shemaim was smiling and laughing and saying, my sons have bested me. What does that mean? That means that Hashem set up the world that we should have control over the Torah. And he said the way we're going to follow is by the majority rule. Now, of course, who those majority is, it's not any, you know, any Tom, Dick, and Harry. It could be the, the, the rabbis that we're talking about. There are very specific rules about who those people are. But the bottom line is, we follow the majority opinion. And Hashem said, I'm glad they're beating me. Which means Hashem gave us control of the Torah. That's where Hashem is passive. So in certain areas, Hashem is dominant all the time. For example, all of nature, right? Hashem makes nature happen the way it does. Although Hashem, of course, breaks his own nature from time to time, including, actually, no, not always. I was going to say, Tzadik Gozer Vakarish Baruch Hu There are times where Hashem says, I'm going to let a righteous person make a decree on me and I'll follow through. So even when it comes to the nature of the world, Hashem says, I'm going to follow through with you. The perfect blend between Hashem and the Jewish people is the Torah. The Torah is what sets up the parameters. The mitzvos are what set up the parameters for when God gets to be dominant and when God will voluntarily be passive and allow us to be dominant. Do you understand the fundamental power of the first mitzvah? It means Hashem is saying, you children, I'm going to not only do I make the most beautiful world for you, but I'm going to give you the keys. And not just the keys to the physical world, which Hashem gave us, and of course we are unfortunately often destroying that world with our carelessness. Right? Hashem for sure gave us the keys to the physical world. That's the story where Hashem takes Adam in the Garden of Eden, and He takes him around, He shows him the whole world, and He says, look, Adam, I created this beautiful world for you. Put it to your mind that you should not destroy my world. But even the spiritual world, the world of heavens, the world that God inhabits, God says, I'm going to give you people control over that. Not total control. There are times where God dominates. But there are times where God is going to be passive. 
In Kabbalistic terms, the trait that refers to the perfect blend between dominance and passivity is called Yisod. Yisod. Okay. Now, the Torah, which is that exact interplay where God gives over some of the dominance of the world to the rabbis, is the ultimate wisdom of the world, and that's why it's called the Yisod of the world. In the very first Medrash Rabbah on Bereshis, in the very first word of the Torah, Bereshis, when Hashem is creating the world, it says, Bereshis, don't read it as Bereshis, but rather read it as Barashis. Hashem created for six. The word Shis is six. And the Medrash there says, Amar Abinai, Ha'olam umlo'o, lo nivra elabuschus Torah. Rabbanai says, again, this, this Medrash Rabbah on the first Pasuk in the Torah, the whole world was created for the merit of the Torah. Shenemar Hashem bechachma yasad aretz. Hashem with wisdom, the ultimate wisdom of the world is the Torah. Yasad aretz, that is the yesod of the word. That's not a mistake that Hashem used the word yesod there. Yesod means foundation. Foundation is the perfect blend between dominance and passivity. The creation of the world is the result of Hashem creating a chachma Yona, the most brilliant Torah that splits control of the world between God and humanity. That is the essence of our world, because if God wanted a world in which we didn't have any control, God could have created a trillion worlds of robots, and he wouldn't have gotten the value of one earth. One earth in which he has a real relationship with mankind, in which he takes on a certain role of passivity at certain places, and allows us to be in control. Again, a million robot worlds, God, a billion robot worlds God could have created, and everybody would have just done exactly what he said. There'd be no passivity, no flow, no back and forth between God and man. But instead, Hashem said, that's not what I want. I want a world in which I'm sharing power with you. This is power sharing with God. The first mitzvah ever, guys. Remember, we said the first mitzvah's got to be fundamental. The first mitzvah ever, Hashem says, children, I'm going to share power with you. And the whole world can't believe it because nowhere else in the universe does God share power with humanity. The Torah says, Vayer Vayiboker, Yom Hashishi. And it was evening and it was morning, the sixth day. On all the other days of the creation, it says, Vayer Vayiboker, Yom Hamishi. Day five. Vayer Vayiboker, Yom Shlishi. But here it says, Yom Hashishi. The sixth day. Like, the sixth day. Something very, very important about this sixth day. The Talmud in Avodah Zarah, Daf Gimel Amud Beis, or Daf Gimel Amud Aleph, says that Reish Lakish explains, Why does the Torah say, the sixth day? Melamed Shehisna HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu made it tonight with the world. Im Yisrael Mekabla Mesatorah, if the Jewish people will accept the Torah which was given on the, the sixth day, then good. And if not, If not, I'm going to return the whole world to nothingness. The world started off before the world was created. The world was chaos and, 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 and nothingness and void. Hashem says, my entire goal in creating a world is that I want to interact with you. I want to relate with you. And the only way that I can relate with you is if there's a relationship which by definition entails me being dominant sometimes and me being passive sometimes. If I have a spouse and I'm dominating all the time, we don't have a relationship. We don't have a relationship if I'm just dominating my spouse all the time and always telling my spouse what to do and never listening to him. We don't have a relationship. I've got a whipping boy, not a spouse. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I want a relationship with you. I'm going to create a Torah. That Torah is supposed to be given on the sixth day, the sixth day of Sivan. And the very we go back all the way to the sixth day of creation, the day that God creates mankind. The day where God creates a being that he will be able to relate to. And God says, I'm creating the world, I'm creating you on the sixth day of creation, 
But really, I'm waiting for that other sixth day, the sixth day, the sixth day of Sivan, when the Jewish people will receive the Torah. And if they take it, if they want to get into a relationship with me, they want to have that incredible and awesome power, but yet responsibility to relate to God, then great, then I want this world. But if not, if I'm not going to have anybody relate to me, then I don't really want this world. And I'll mash it back into nothingness and void and start all over again. What day is the day where God creates humanity, who he will relate to, in a real relationship way? Not like what God created on the fifth day of creation, the birds, the whales, that's not, there's no relationship there. God has no real relationship with the whales. The whales never assert dominance over God. It's only on the sixth day of creation that God creates humanity. And of course, six is the number in Kabbalistic thought that relates to Yesod. Yesod is the relationship of passivity and dominance. The very first mitzvah of the Torah is God saying to humanity, I want a power share with you. What is this? How does this relate to our lives? Now, of course, what that means is that God gave control of the Torah over to humanity. That does not mean, let me just make this very, very clear, that if a group of reform rabbis decide to put out a declaration saying that the mitzvahs are no longer relevant, all the mitzvahs between man and God, which they did, it's called the Pittsburgh Platform, where they basically came out and said directly that all the mitzvahs between man and God are are null and void. That's not what it's talking about. And it's not even talking about when a bunch of conservative rabbis get together and say, we're gonna. This mitzvah is, is not no longer required or, or, or is optional or whatever it is. That's not what it's referring to. Any group of rabbis that say they don't necessarily believe in the Torah Misenai can't be the people who determine what Torah Misenai says. So the majority of conservative and reform rabbis don't believe in the validity of the Torah Misenai. That God came down at Mount Sinai after freeing his people from Egypt and gave them the Torah in front of everybody. So the people who don't believe in Torah Sinai can't determine what Torah Sinai is. But for those of us that we are involved, it means that Hashem wants a relationship with us. And not only on the Torah level, but on every single mitzvah. Every single mitzvah, every single decision that we are faced with. Hashem is saying, hey, I'm, I'm waiting on the other side of this. Your move. Go ahead. It's, it's your move, lady. You want to blow up and get angry at somebody? Because he took your spot in Shul? <laughs> he sat in your spot in the pew in the synagogue? You want to get angry at him and tell him off? Why do you always sit on my seat? How many times have I tell you this is my seat? <laughs> you want to be that guy? God's like, all right, it's your move. I'm waiting. I'm going to relate to you the way you relate to me. Not only am I going to create the ability for the rabbis to determine how our calendar looks and what's Rosh Chodesh and when I meet with you. Again, again, the first mitzvah is God saying, you're going to be the one who tells me when to come for the Pesach Seder. But it's also Hashem telling us this is the root of every mitzvah. Every mitzvah, Hashem is saying, you know what's right over here. I'm waiting for you to do your move and I'll, I'll take your lead. You want to act with incredible self-control and forgiveness and you want to forgive other people who slight you? People who legitimately make fun of you. You want to let it go? Okay, I'll, I'll let your sins go. Remember we talked about this in a, in a previous week where Hashem says, if a person is hears shomim charpasam be'enam meshivim when a person hears somebody else making fun of him and he just lets it go Hashem says okay I'm going to let go all of your infractions against me because I'm going to rule this world mida kenegin mida measure for measure Hashem says it's, it's your move lady someone's saying really nasty things to you and making fun of you in front of other people there's two things you could do you can either get really angry at him and start cursing him out of course, if you start cursing, you start using your language in a horrible and dirty way, I'm going to have to take away stuff from you. The Gemara says that when someone has a czar din of 70 years of good, 
but they use their mouth in a, in a, in a, in a disgusting and, and, and terrible way, Hashem could take 70 years of good that was supposed to come to him and, and turn it away to bad. On the other hand, if I had terrible things that were supposed to happen to me, but then I instead, I was bolem peeve, I was quiet when you were making fun of me, Hashem says, wow, okay, I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to wipe away all your bad deeds. Hashem is, is, is looking to relate to us and He's looking for us to take the first move. How beautiful, how empowering is that? To know that God is with you all the time. He wants to relate to you. He created a world specifically so that He could relate to you. Hashem said, if you don't want to relate with me, if you don't want the Torah, which describes the complex interactions between God and man, if there's nobody out there that wants to relate to me in this type of relationship with mitzvos, and savta, the word mitzvah comes from the word savta, togetherness, a relationship. I'll start over again. I'll turn the world back to nothingness. I only created this world because I wanted to relate to people. And if I don't have anybody to relate with, I'll start over again. The very first mitzvah tells us, Hashem is saying to us, here, it's your world. Connect with me over it. Be with me in it. How empowering, how beautiful, what an amazing world we live in, what incredible opportunities we have every time we get a mitzvah. Remember, the first mitzvah is fundamental and teaches you about all the mitzvahs. And all the mitzvahs are an opportunity for us to power share with God. Hashem creates a world that's waiting for us to fix it, to build it. Asher bara elokim la'asos. Hashem created the world la'asos for us to do. Hashem created the world with a bunch missing, and it's our job to fill in those gaps. And when we do, He's able to reward us tremendously for completing creation with Him. But if we destroy the world further, then that's how He relates to us too, with destruction. So my dear friends, as we go out there and we face all these mitzvot, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, if you want to understand what was going on, Moshe Rabbeinu came out and said, guys, I'm going to give you the first mitzvah at 1 o'clock. And the whole Jewish world came together. And when Moshe said, listen to how our world is going to work, not only are we going to follow the lunar calendar because it waxes and wanes, but we're going to follow the lunar calendar because it's going to be our opportunity to determine when the new month starts and God's going to follow. And the people were sitting there stunned. No one could talk. No one could move. You're telling me that God's going to follow my lead? It's impossible, but he's God. And Moshe said, no, I know, I know, it's, it's crazy, it's amazing, he's God, but he's going to follow our lead. How crazy is that? Because he wants to relate to us, and he's going to give us lots of other mitzvos, lots of other opportunities to connect with him, and to allow him to follow our progress. And I can just imagine the gasps that were running through the crowd. And now, 3,334 years later, we still need to have those same gasps as we recognize the power of what Hashem gave to us. Ashrechem Yisrael. Praiseworthy are you, O Israel. Hashem put the keys to the world in your hands. May we all recognize the weight and the power of what we have in our hands and use it responsibly and beautifully, and Hashem will follow suit. He's waiting for our move. Let's make it count. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being awesome. If you didn't learn anything else today, you learned that you are awesome and you have awesome responsibilities and awesome capabilities. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.